0: The title of this message is Offensive Relationships. Offensive Relationships. Here's the thesis. Your relationships should be offensive. Your marriage should be offensive. The way you date, the way that you're handling your engagement, it should be offensive. Your friendships, your group should be offensive. To who? To the enemy of your soul and the enemy of your relationships, who wants nothing more than to destroy the relationships in your life. The enemy should look at your marriage and go, oh crap, that's a kingdom weapon right there. They're coming for me. He should look at your group getting together and shudder. Man, those are some people coming together to charge my gates. They're gonna charge the gates of hell together. They're bringing the light into the darkness of Jesus Christ. I worry for too many of our relationships that the enemy looks at them and goes, psh, light work, child's play. Couple questions, a little temptation. I can blow this thing up. I worry that, His tactic that he has always had is working all too well in our lives right now of striking at relationship. He's done this from the beginning with Adam and Eve. This whole thing went upside down when he struck at their relationship with God and their relationship with each other. It's always been his tactic to get you into his way of thinking, into his bad strategies of the world. The answer to have an offensive relationship is found in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The last verse is the most famous verse. You hear it at weddings. I just read this at a wedding. Verse 12, Ecclesiastes 4.12, it says, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So this obvious meaning of this whole passage and this verse is there's power in numbers. We're not meant to walk this life alone or this faith journey alone. We're supposed to do this together. There's power in numbers. The answer, the ultimate answer is the last line a cord of three strands, that it takes three in marriage. It takes three in a relationship, you, the other person, and God, interwoven together. But the line that has stuck out to me is the middle part. Two can defend themselves. Now there's power in numbers, and defense wins championships, so it's good to be able to play defense. But what it sounds like to me is most relationships are just a person and another person spending their whole lives just playing defense. Just trying hard, just we can make this work, and you can. We're gonna strive and we're gonna try to survive, because we can defend ourselves. But I think there's so much more for our relationships and our marriages than just playing defense. When you get a group of guys together and you decide, let's go play some backyard football, and you have an odd number so you can't have even teams, do you know what no guy ever says? Oh, I'll be all-time defense, (laughs) unless he's still like, I I seriously was the best safety in my high school, guys. I'll be all-time defense. No, every guy's like, I'll be all-time quarterback. We wanna play offense. You'll never see a defensive player more excited in football than when they get to score a touchdown. Pick six, pick up a fumble, take it to the house. That's the most excited they ever get. Why? Because we wanna play some offense, we wanna score points. And I worry that too many of our marriages, too many of our relationships look like a life of all-time defense when we are called to play offense. So there's a double meaning for you. Your relationship should be offensive to the enemy because you are playing offense with your relationship not all-time defense. Your relationship should be offensive to normal. Church, we're not called to normal. We're not called to normal relationships, the bad strategies of this world. We're called to play some offense. And I think for a lot of us, maybe that's new. Maybe we've never really thought of our relationships in that context. Like I've never really seen a, a bigger purpose than just the relationship itself. Maybe for some of us, we never had a template of a kingdom relationship of somebody that has God interwoven into that relationship. Maybe we've never seen that or had an example of that. For a lot of us, we may have never even asked the question, like, why marriage? What's the purpose of all of this? And so I Googled, what is the purpose of marriage to try to help you? And I wanted to see, what does the world have to say about this? A lot of the things that came up were Christian articles of the biblical purpose of marriage. And then I found a Reddit thread. (laughs) And somebody had just lobbed a grenade and just asked the world, what is the purpose of marriage? And I thought, what do the most cynical and maybe honest people have to say about marriage? So here's some some of the results i found for you. One person says, the purpose is religious and legal reasons, and that's pretty much it. They said, I'm not a person of any faith, nor is my partner, so we have no reason to have our union blessed. Okay? (laughs) One person went on a rant. Marriage is the simplest and worst legal contract people agree to without understanding just what they are signing up for. They said, I think that before a marriage license is issued, the involved party should have to attend a class that spells out in great detail all the binding legal obligations that comes in marriage. And to receive that license, they have to sign a document saying they understand what they're getting into. If this was required and people really understood what they were getting into, I bet getting married would stop being a priority for a lot of people, which it is. is—slowly becoming less and less of a priority. I see so much pain in that person's story of broken relationships in their life. They've clearly thought about this a lot. They came up with a whole system. One person said, here's the purpose, to make the wedding and diamond industries money. And, they added, to make insecure people feel more secure. Okay? They said, it's one thing that I hear all the time, love doesn't need contracts, and devotion doesn't require paperwork. We don't need to get married. We don't need to sign something. We know we love each other. One person said, very little other than tradition and ceremony. And one person said, these days, most marriages mean nothing. And I wasn't surprised reading that. I know the culture that I'm in, but I was sad reading that. I thought about the person that said, oh, we should have put a class together where people have to learn what marriage really is. And if we had that, and I thought, oh, man, but if we had the right teacher for that, like the one who created marriage in the first place, And we saw the actual purpose he has for it. I think more people would say, I want that. I want that kind of life. You know, as smart as people on Reddit are, (laughs) when it comes to the biggest questions of life, the purposes, I like to ask the one who created all of this what his purpose is behind the things that he created. People are like, oh, you're crazy. You listen to the Bible? You let the Bible have authority in your life? I'm like, I think you're crazy because you listen to people on Reddit. You let them have authority in your life. Tim Keller wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage, and I would recommend this book to every single person. I wish I had read it when I was single. I wish I read it when I was dating. I wish I read it when I was engaged. I wish we had read it in our first year of marriage and every year since. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. And Tim says this, if God invented marriage, then those who enter it should make every effort to understand and submit to his purposes for it. It's generally good to ask the creator of something, why did you make this? And we see way back in Genesis, the first wedding, the first marriage. God creates everything. He creates this man, Adam, and he looks at him and he goes, it's not good for him to be alone. And so he creates Eve, his wife. And it's this beautiful moment. Adam suddenly a poet. At last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He's so overjoyed at this companion, this partner that God has gifted him with, with face-to-face relationship, one of his own kind. And it explains the creation story. And then Genesis two twenty four it says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Which kind of asks the question, for what reason? Like, I get it, Adam was alone, so it's cool he has somebody to talk. Like, what, for what reason? Why marriage? I think we can look around at culture, we can look at some of the marriages maybe around us and go, I don't really see the point of this whole thing. It seems pretty tough. And Jesus gets asked about marriage specifically a lot about divorce in a very divorce happy culture and all these people are questioning him trying to find their ways out and Jesus quotes this verse he says don't you remember it was for this reason that a man would leave his father and mother and be united to his wife that word united meaning glued together be united together in a culture that was constantly asking how do we get out of something that God has called us into and then in Ephesians 5 the apostle Paul gives this great explanation of marriage the heart of it how we're supposed to go about it. A lot of people avoid that passage because we don't have a good biblical context, understanding of the Holy Spirit-led relationship that Paul is talking about. And at the end of this passage, as he explains marriage, he says this, he quotes Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And by this time, you're like, I've read this three times in the Bible. Paul, do you wanna tell me why, for what reason? And he clues us in in verse 32. This is a profound mystery, this marriage thing. It's mysterious. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. What Paul's telling us is the mystery, the secret of marriage is that the gospel of Jesus and marriage are supposed to explain each other. That we know Christ more deeply through marriage, and through marriage, we become more deeply like Christ. Francis Chan says that marriage is the billboard to shout God's message from. That the world should look at our marriages, look at our relationships, and see the story of Jesus, see the gospel. In the very beginning, the macro picture in Genesis 1 when God creates everything, and he creates Adam and Eve, it says, God blessed them, and he said to them, hey, you guys aren't just gonna sit here. He said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. You've got a purpose to your marriage. There's stuff I want you to go do together. You've been united, glued together for a purpose. And thanks to those two, we live in a fallen world, that's broken, where Jesus comes and he calls us, he saves the world and tells us to go tell everyone about it, gives us a great commission. And you can put those two things together and see the purpose of relationship. I'll define it this way. You have been united to bear kingdom fruit and make disciples. When he says be fruitful and multiply, that means having kids, but it's more than that. That's part of being fruitful. That's part of multiplying. But Jesus gives a movement of multiplication called the church. And your marriage is supposed to be at the center of that. That's supposed to be the purpose of your marriage. For some people, that might be like, I've never heard that before, thought of my marriage like that. For some people, you might be like, I hear that all the time. I'm supposed to make disciples. I'm supposed to go tell people about Jesus. Yes, but not just individually. That's also the purpose of your marriage and your relationships as well, to play offense. And to do so, you have to be a cord of three strands with the biblical strategies, with God, the Holy Spirit interwoven into your relationship. And this is why I love Ecclesiastes 4, because it paints this picture of the difference between earthly striving and kingdom thriving. Of the bad strategies and the biblical strategies. Of the ways that we are prone to as fallen people, broken people, the things we carry into relationships and the results that follow. And the contrast of what it looks like to be a cord of three strands. To live the life that God has for us. And so I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 4, this certain passage, that's about relationships, and I'm gonna make a couple of disclaimers before we get into it. Number one, this passage is about relationship. It's not exclusively about marriage. So if you're single in here and you're like, one may be overpowered, I'm doomed. <laughs> like, hey, you're not alone. Look around, you got a family here. You got people around you. This passage isn't just about marriage. It's about relationship, it's about community. I'm gonna speak mostly in the context of marriage because I believe it to be the most intimate and important relationship. But this applies to all of our relationships. If you're single or you're dating right now, let this passage, let the vision that God has help you in the here and now, how you go about dating to help you in the then and there when you are married. Learn from it now. Learn things that people in here that are married or maybe divorced would go, gosh, I wish I had known that. I wish I had seen God's purposes behind this. This is for everyone. And I'm also gonna make this disclaimer that some of the things that we talk about, especially like in a relationship series, pornography, sex, living together, things like that, the way that the world goes about relationships. I know when we contrast that or we go talk about those things, it sounds very foreign to a lot of you. To a lot of us in this culture, a biblical understanding of relationship is like, what the heck are you talking about? That sounds crazy. And I recognize that. Uh, When I maybe poke a little bit today, ruffle some feathers, here's my hope, not shame, but vision. Not shame, but vision. I love you enough to tell you the truth that may offend your flesh in hopes that it feeds your spirit to find what God actually has for you, what he actually wants for you. One of my buddies was like, dude, you're throwing haymakers this weekend. I'm like, my, I'm throwing haymakers, not at you. I'm not trying to knock you out. I'm trying to help you knock the enemy and his bad strategies out of your life. For some of you in this room, maybe divorce is in your story, and I want you to know there are no second-class Christians. I know that that's a painful part of your story and I know maybe some things may sting today because you're like, gosh, we didn't know that or we didn't work that way. And this sermon is not about back then, it's about from here. It's about vision for your life and also for you to be able to help other people not walk into the pain that maybe you walked into. I talked to a lady last night who was like, I'm divorced and some of that was hard to hear because I realized my husband and I, we weren't a court of three strands and that's why it fell apart. We could only play defense for so long and now she mentors people and helps younger people to see what a God-given marriage, what a god purpose marriage could look like in their lives. This is not about shame. This is about vision. We're throwing haymakers at the enemy today. So let's start with the first verse. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. If you ever read Ecclesiastes, just get used to the word meaningless. It's this interesting narrative where this teacher observes the world and then comments on what he's seeing. And the first thing he sees is a very bad strategy that a lot of us live our lives with and carry into relationships called jealousy. Bad strategy number one, jealousy. What he's saying is when I look around, it looks to me like all these people, their main motivator is envy. They live their whole lives based out of what does that person have that I don't and what are they that I'm not? And that just kind of guides their life. They live a life of envy and jealousy which is toxic in a relationship. When I first was dating my wife, and I've had to work through this even into our marriage, but when we were dating especially, it was like every room I walked into, I'm like sizing up every other guy, like, gosh, I hope she doesn't realize he's smarter than me, he's funnier than me, he's stronger than me, he makes more money than me. You feel this jealousy all the time. And the way that this comes about is that we as human beings are always comparing, always playing the comparison game. And comparison leads to insecurity because we're always so aware of what they are that we're not, and that insecurity in a relationship gives birth to jealousy, which leads us ultimately to control, so I was in H-E-B the other day. I saw this girlfriend who was just pushing the cart like a normal person, while her boyfriend was also pushing the cart with his arms around hers and his legs around hers, and he's literally like waddling like a penguin or something, And I wanted to walk up to him and be like, hey, bro, uh, nobody's going to walk up in H-E-B right now and try to steal your girlfriend. You could probably just let her breathe right now and walk next to her. And by the way, if you think that someone could walk up to you guys while you're grocery shopping together and your girlfriend's going to run off with them, you should break up right now. I'm a pastor. I will officiate the breakup." This looks crazy. This is a picture of how so many of us live our relationships. When you are living the bad strategy of jealousy guiding you, what you're always saying is, I need control. I need control. To counterpunch that, to have a healthy relationship, the biblical strategy is surrender, to open your hands. And you can do that when you can say, God's in control. He's in control. Things don't go that well when I'm in control in the first place. I need to surrender and be a cord of three strands and let God be in control. Control Now, some of you, you may, if you're in a relationship right now, you're dating, you're engaged, and you just feel neurotic all the time, like you cannot trust them. Maybe trust has been broken, and you have to monitor everywhere they go and everything they do, and you're always anxious and worried, maybe counseling and maybe just break up. It, it's not going to get better once you get married. Marriage is a magnifier. It's only going to make it more real in your life. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this concept, it is possible to feel that you are madly in love with someone when it is really just an attraction to someone who can meet your needs and address those insecurities and doubts you have about yourself. In that kind of relationship, you will demand and control rather than serve and give. The only way to avoid sacrificing your partner's joy and freedom on the altar of your need is to turn to the ultimate lover of your soul, to turn and say, actually, God's in control. I can't control this. I need to let him be in control. Some of you, maybe that's the challenge in your relationship right now. Maybe the challenge is that you want God to be in control, but the other person doesn't. That you want Jesus, you wanna be a court of three strands, but they just wanna be two people playing defense. They don't want God in the relationship. And I'd say, if you're dating or engaged, you should break up. Do not hit your life to somebody who wants something different than you and the most important aspect of it. You will either diverge paths or more likely you will cave to theirs and live a life of jealousy and control. And I know when I say that, there's some people in here and that's painful because you may be in a marriage where your spouse doesn't want anything to do with God. They don't want him to be in control. I always think of friends of mine, friends in this church who come here alone, whose spouse does not come to church. They don't want God to be in control. And if that's you, I'm praying with you for your spouse. I just believe that God will save them. And I also would call you to also surrender the fact that you can't save them. And I imagine that is a painful thing every single day. I can't make them choose God. I can't make them put him in control. But I'm praying with you. Seeing it happen, the Bible talks a lot about how you can love them. Man, you can worship in your home. You can read scripture. You can speak truth. You can be the light of Jesus to them. But ultimately, it's him who saves, not you. That pressure is not on your shoulders. And so I'm praying for your spouse. And on behalf of some of my friends who are in those types of marriages, let that caution those of you who are not who are not yet married, to not get into one, but to hit yourself to somebody who wants the same thing as you, a cord of three strands, a life where God's in control. Okay, that was the easy one, the light one. Verse five, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Somebody get a tattoo of that, that's encouraging. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. We'll call this bad strategy settling, settling. This verse is about laziness. This guy's called a fool. Basically, this is a guy who's going, uh nah, it sounds too tough. I'm just gonna do this the easy way, which we as human beings, that's what we're prone to. We like the path of least resistance. We like the easy way, right? It's kind of how we are. And fellas, I'm gonna talk to you for a second uh, because I think that this world constantly pressures us and pushes us to settle for being men of the world rather than the call to be men of God. And when men settle, the world settles. That story's been going on for a long time. There was a study where they asked men about relationships, and they said that compatibility, all these guys, above all, compatibility meant someone who showed a willingness to take them as they are and not change them. On one hand, I understand that. Nobody wants to be a project. You're a person. Be preferred to be treated that way. This whole like, oh, he's this wounded wild dog, and I'm gonna domesticate him. Like, no, nobody wants to be that. Don't do that. There's actually a great wildness in a man that's not supposed to be domesticated. It's supposed to be directed towards Jesus. I also think that that idea has become an excuse for men to forever remain the same. There was a guy who, in this study, he—this is what he said: If you are truly compatible, then you don't have to change. It's like this guy's not married. And if he is, he is a horrible spouse. You don't have to change. I pray to God I'm not the same guy I was when my wife and I got married almost 10 years ago. Of course you change and adapt and grow, but nobody wants to do that. And to be fair to these guys, we live in a culture that's telling us that to put someone else's interests and life ahead of yours is oppressive to you. It's oppressive to you to think of somebody before yourself. Look out for number one. And that's kind of been the way that we're geared since way back. Good old Adam in the garden. The serpent's tempting his wife and you're looking at I'm like, hey, this would be a good time to speak up. You should say something. And he's like, uh, this would be awkward. I don't want to ruffle feathers. This does sound kind of cool. Let's try this fruit. And we're all like, cool, man. Thank you so much. Now AI is taking over the world. Look at us now. We appreciate you. In heaven, everyone's going to be having a great time. And then Adam and Eve, everyone's like, uh eh, nah. <laughs> Thanks for everything, guys. But the laziness, the passivity in Adam is in all of us, especially us men. We have a challenge before us. Will we fall like Adam or will we rise like Christ? You know, it used to be that marriage was the place where men became truly masculine. For most of Western history, the primary and most valued characteristic of manhood was self-mastery. A man who indulged in excessive eating and drinking and sleeping and sex, people would look at and say he's unfit to rule a household or an organization. Don't trust that guy with anybody. Don't put him in charge of anyone. It used to be that it was sexual restraint, not sexual prowess, that was the measure of a man. And now we live in a world that celebrates boys who can shave. Forever boys. boys. Men settling for less. And guys, I'm not throwing stones at you. I've been this guy. I know this life. This is what we're fed. This is what we're told. And I'm not shaming you today. I'm calling you because you're made for more. And maybe your dad or the men in your life never showed you what it looks like to be a man of God. And man, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're hearing about Jesus because he is the one man you need to follow. The one man to realize what it looks like to actually not settle for less, but to sacrifice for more. That's what the counterpunch to settling is, it's sacrifice. Settling is where we say it's not worth it. Let's take it the easy way. Sacrifice is where we say God is worth it. He's worth it. Doing this the hard way. There's an example that is gonna ruffle, by statistics, 70% of feathers in this room. Living together before you get married. And I know for a lot of you, that might be your story or was your story, and maybe it's your parents were the ones who said, test it out before you actually commit to this thing. And I know there's financial and logical reasons that people do that. Again, I'm not throwing stones. The problem is that the world feeds you bad strategies but doesn't tell you about bad results that come from them, and that job is left to pastors, and then you're mad at us. (laughs) But we love you enough to tell you the truth for a lot of couples, I think that it's one person saying, hey, I don't actually love you enough to fully commit to you and close off all the other options, but let's play house and make this more convenient for me. Tim Keller says this cohabitation or living together gives men regular access to domestic and sexual ministrations of a girlfriend while allowing them to lead a more independent life and continue to look around for a better partner. The world's going to tell you this makes sense. It's not going to tell you that you're 33% more likely to get divorced if you live together before you're married. That if you're sleeping together and living together before marriage, you are far more likely to have an affair. And if that's your story, maybe you're living together right now. Or maybe you're married and you lived together before you got married and you're like, oh, crap. Nobody told us that. Are we doomed? I have a lot of friends who lived together before they got married and they have great marriages. Because they figured out this court of three strands thing they started to make God the center. They said God's worth it. It's not about then and there, it's about from here and out. I have some friends who were living together and moved out until their wedding day. They just didn't know and decided we're gonna try a biblical strategy. We're gonna do this the more sacrificial way because God's worth it. And in a world where, unfortunately, men are constantly tempted to settle for less, what it leads to is that women settle for less because they settle for us, and then our kids pay the price. And this isn't all on men, ladies. When you're settling, you're licensing. When you're settling to let a man remain forever a boy, you're licensing him to do so, and then you're mad at him for it. We love sacrifice. It's quiet in here. (laughs) We love sacrifice in theory, not in reality. Right? Like, thank God Jesus didn't settle for what was easy and convenient to him. That he didn't do what was deserved for us. We go to a wedding, and it's like a reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not boast. It does not envy. It's not self-seeking. Oh, that's so beautiful. Not gonna live like that. That sounds pretty challenging. Sounds like it's not really the me thing. Have to sacrifice But what great thing in life is not worth sacrificing for and doesn't require sacrifice? And it's in that mystery of marriage when we live a life of sacrifice because God's worth it that people see the gospel. That they look at your marriage, they look at your relationship and go, I see something different here, I see Jesus. Sacrifice that's undeserved. Francis Chan said, Jesus' humility is the key to healthy marriage. Arguments escalate when we wanna be right more than we wanna be like Christ. One of the most important things you can do in a relationship is sacrifice when you least want to. There's times where I'm lazy, I'm selfish. It's in my broken nature. I want things that are easy for me. I want this to be about me. I don't want to sacrifice for my wife. You know what really sobers me up in those moments is remembering who her father is. I'm talking about her heavenly father. Ultimately, the guy whose blessing I asked to marry her. And I'm getting selfish and lazy and then I remember who her dad is and go, I don't mess with that guy. And also he has called me to sacrifice to lay my life down for her because he's worth it to me. And because of that, she's worth it to me. Even when she's a pain. Even when I'm like, hey bro, this is your daughter. Maybe you figure this out. (laughs) Sacrifice is where we say God is worth it. We don't settle for what the world has for us. We don't settle for what's easy. We don't settle for less. We sacrifice for more. Verse six, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. We'll call this bad strategy toil. We'll read a little more about it in a second. What this describes is someone who's given something, but it's not enough. They always need more, always need to grab at everything, always filling themselves with all of these temporary things, trying to fill up an eternal appetite and wondering why it's not working. Never enough, never content, never satisfied. And that's in human nature because we're broken and we realize a lot of the time, like I'm not fully fulfilled and I'm not content in all these ways. I have problems and relationships become a really good place to blame somebody else for that. Well, they just weren't enough for me. They just didn't fulfill me in the ways they were supposed to. They weren't everything for me. But I think deep down in all of us, what we really know and what leads to a life that can be so much toil, always trying to make more of ourselves, get more for ourselves is the realization that I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I'm not everything that I wanna be and everything that I need to be. For my spouse, it's been a hard pill to swallow, but so humbling and good for me to realize I can't save her, I can't fix all her problems and all her pain, I can't be everything. I'm actually not everything that she needs. The bad strategy of toil is where you're constantly living out of that identity and letting that guide you and let that toil just continually trying to fill myself to become enough. Where the contrast of it, the biblical strategy that this verse gives us is tranquility, peace, and that comes from being able to say, God is enough. He is enough for me. If there's a lack of contentment in your life, it's probably because you have the wrong person on the throne. Might be you. It might be the person that you're talking to, DMing with right now. Might be your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse that you have put on the throne expecting them to be God in your life, and they can't do that. Neither can you. And I imagine for those of you in the dating world with this culture of dating apps where you can always be swiping and looking for more, there's always this part of you that feels like, ah, there might be, like this this person that's great in my life right now, there might be somebody out there who's better. Toil, toil, toil. And unfortunately, so many great Christian people aren't getting asked on dates. So many great Christian couples aren't coming together or staying together because of this toil. Ah, I'm not fully satisfied. They aren't quite everything. They're not the perfect 100 out of 100 of my list. You're expecting them to be God, and they can't be. Most of my marriage problems are not marriage problems. They're God problems. It's not that something's wrong with her. It's that I'm not right with him. That I need to come back to him and get us aligned to remember this whole thing, that he's actually enough for me, that he's everything I need. And because of that, I don't have to put the crushing burden on my wife to be my savior. And that's where freedom, more tranquility, where peace comes into a relationship. He is enough. He's everything I need, so she can be enough for me. She's not perfect, but she's a gift that I can hold and go, Man, I find peace here. This is the gift of God. I don't need to go looking somewhere else. This is a beautiful gift of tranquility because he is enough. He's everything I need. And we read now about toil. There's this character we kind of get introduced to. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. You've got this guy who's just grabbing at everything, working and working and working, getting everything of the world in the process. He's forfeited relationship. He's all alone. And he goes, what was this all for? I picture Ebenezer Scrooge from The Christmas Carol. A guy who has all this stuff you think you want, and he's lost all the people in his life. It's cost him. The most important part, relationship. And this passage kind of gets to its conclusion, and it ultimately points to the kind of overarching bad strategy that we handle relationships with, which is simply the relationship strategy of me. I'm the main character in this thing. This is all about me. And in a culture that most values autonomy and achievement and individual freedom and self-fulfillment and your happiness, man, those things go hand in hand. Oh yeah, don't put somebody before yourself. That's oppressive to you. If you're not happy, then just walk away. Something's wrong with them. And this wasn't always how marriage was looked at. It was actually the enlightenment when humans decided that we were smarter than God, which bad things always follow that mentality, that things started to shift in how we saw marriage, how we saw relationship. Legal scholar John Witt Jr. says this, the earlier ideal of marriage as a permanent contractual union designed for the sake of mutual love, procreation, and protection is slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of individual parties. Tim Keller says, in this view, married persons marry for themselves, not to fulfill responsibilities to God or society. In short, the Enlightenment privatized marriage, taking it out of the public sphere and redefined its purpose as individual gratification, not any broader good such as reflecting God's nature, producing character, or raising children. In short, marriage used to be about us, and now marriage is about me. That's how we walk into relationships and filter them. Always asking the question, what do I gain? rather than the question of what do I give, which is the question that Jesus is always asking. We're always asking, what do I get from this? If it's not everything that I've ever wanted, then I'm out, rather than what do I give to this to build this into the relationship that I've dreamed of? And the irony of the world's bad strategies that won't tell you about the bad results to follow is we, we believe all of these lies, all of these things that we think it should be all about me, and it's, it's, it's what do I need? Always ask that question, what do I need? And it puts this crushing burden on us and the other person and leads us into a life of a relationship that looks like insecurity and jealousy and control, settling, lazy, toil, discontentment, isolation, even within a marriage, even within a relationship, relationship feeling completely alone. I think about that man who was toiling, wondering what was this all for? And this man was trying to recreate his own Eden, recreate his own utopia, where he could have everything that would fulfill him, everything would be perfect, everything he needs. And in the process, he forgot about the most important part, which was the relationship. It's interesting when you read Genesis 1 and 2 that God makes all this stuff and he's going, this is good, this is good, this is good. Humans, very good. But somehow in this peaceful, perfect creation, there was one thing that was not good in God's eyes. It's not good for this man to be alone. The most important gift I can give him is to be glued together with someone else to go bear kingdom fruit, to go live the life that I have for them together, which we find at the end of this passage. Two are better than one, verse nine, because they have good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Married people said amen. Two can lie down together and they will keep warm. Okay, nobody's married in here, or married couples are not having sex. That's not good. Sex is a great gift from God for your marriage, so if you're not doing it, you should do it. I said that to married people. just want to be clear there. I know the guy that's like, I heard what I needed. Love that pastor. That guy is awesome. Let me get my DMs going. Okay. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And married people said, okay, this, uh, I, I, I forgot what service I'm in. Understood. You're all single and dating. Verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. The bad strategy of me is always asking, what do I want? The biblical strategy of we, the three of us, is asking the question, what does God want? What does he ultimately want? Not even what do they want, because sometimes what they want is not what he wants. It's asking what does God want for our marriage? What does he want for our relationship? And what you find out when you start walking this life, a cord of three strands, is that marriage is not the mission. Marriage has a mission, a mission for you two to go live together, glued together, play an offense. Francis Chan says this, being in war together is what keeps us from being at war with each other when we remember that we are put side by side to go wage war on the kingdom of hell, to go tell the story of Jesus. Imagine if like the Lord of the Rings movies were just like the group of guys and elves and all the different things, and they just like sat around and just hung out, just talked to each other, told stories, had some disagreements, and at the end of it, they're like, oh, this was cool. I think we're all friends here. Imagine the epic tale of Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and they went to school for seven years and they got good grades and graduated and got decent jobs and remained friends through it all, (laughs) right? The most epic stories that make us wanna come alive and go play some offense live our lives are when people are united together to go save the world, to go change the world, to have a mission to their relationship. Imagine if the book of Acts was Peter and the guys just in the upper room like, man, those cool times with Jesus, huh? Let's tell some stories, let's go fishing. And they hung out, they bickered all the time about who was the greatest. And then one day they all just were like, yeah, it's been good, we're friends, and they died of old age. No, the story of the church is people being united together to go change the world with the message of the one who saved it. And your marriage is included in that. It's supposed to be at the center of that. Through marriage, the mystery of the gospel is revealed. You will become more like Christ and you will know him more deeply and you will show the world the sacrificial love of Jesus. So they look at your relationship and go, what's that? That does not look anything like what all those people on Reddit, what they're talking about. It looks entirely different. Bearing kingdom fruit, making disciples. This whole thing started with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. Adam and Eve together and at the end of all of this, Jesus and his church joined together. And in between those two weddings is yours, is your relationship. And what you get to do is call back to that original purpose to bear kingdom fruit and on that, in that process make disciples to invite as many people around you to that wedding to be with us in eternity. That's the point of your marriage. The most fulfilling moments for my wife and I Start with our two boys when we see these little disciples that we're raising up. Getting to sit at the kitchen table with my four-year-old and have Bible study together and he's asking all these questions and watching him start to grow in his relationship with God and ask me questions that I don't know the answers to. Get to see our neighbors, our friends, people that we get to share the love of Jesus with. We get to share some of the bad strategies that we've had in our relationship. Say, learn from us, don't do this. Here's what God would have you do. Here's what it looks like to have a healthy, beautiful, thriving marriage, not earthly striving, We've had seasons where we're two people just trying to play defense and gotta get back to God so we can play some offense together through surrender and sacrifice and finding that tranquility that this is enough because he's enough. Being content with the gift that he's given us and realizing that we have a a purpose, a mission to go on together in unity, glued together. I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, Wade Lombard. His family comes here. They're an amazing family. And I look at Wade's family and I see a kingdom weapon. I look at his marriage and his kids. He's got three teenagers who are here every weekend. They're growing our youth ministry. They serve here. They're getting kids at their high school worshiping together. Wade and Kimberly have done so much for the kingdom in this city. And so I called Wade, I'm like, bro, I looked at your family and it looks different to me. I see the gospel in your family. What's been the key to that? How do you guys approach marriage? And while we were talking about marriage and how they go about it, one of the things I love that he said, he's like, you know what? We've been married for so long. I don't even totally remember like life before Kimberly, but we just, we came together and man, it's been so awesome. We've had ups and downs, but he said, we just kick butt together. He didn't actually say butt, so pray for Wade and his, his cussing problem. His wife, Kimberly, is still working really hard. Pray for Kimberly, ultimately. Marriage is a great sanctifier. It's working on Wade. We kick butt together. For many of us, we forget that we should be kicking butt together. We're too busy trying to kick each other's, maybe forgetting that there's a purpose at all. And Wade said one of the key things for their family, it came from his mom, something that they always say is this, but in this family. So the world may do it this way, but in this family, this is how we do it. Reminds me of Joshua way back when he's looking at all the Israelites, he's like, you guys gotta decide if you're gonna do this God's way or you're gonna do it your way. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I love that both their names are on here because it shows the generational impact of what happens when you start to live the biblical strategies, the kingdom thriving, that it passes down to the people that will come after you. And so for Wade and Kimberly, one example he gave, he's like, hey, we told our kids your friends are gonna be probably gone all the time on weekends, travel teams and and parties and all the things they do. And that's great, that's good for them. But in this family, we are at church together every weekend, making some of those decisions. Hey, hey, your friends may may be able to do some of these things. Their parents may let them go out and do whatever they want. But in this family, we we don't. We have some restrictions around you because we want the best for you. And I was like, wait, I'm gonna steal that from my family and I'm gonna let the whole church steal it as well. To say, hey, the world may have some bad strategies, but in this family, we go about the biblical strategies. The world may tell us to settle for less, but in this family, we sacrifice for more. The world may tell us that we should just kind of use DMs and shoot messages and never show our cards, but in this family, we walk up to somebody and ask them on a date, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, because we're adults. The world may tell us to settle for cheap hookups on apps, but in this family, we wait. We wait for somebody who actually wants God to be in control so that we can be a court of three strands together. We don't settle for less, we sacrifice for more. Our parents, the world, whatever, may give us that kind of bad strategy advice of how we should treat living together or sex or whatever, but in this family, we go first to God to ask him, What's the best for us? What do you have for us? The world may feed us on Reddit with all of these inputs and all of these things that we're supposed to listen to, but in this family, we listen to the Word of God. We let the Word of God speak to and guide us. The world may tell us that we know best and that somebody out there is smarter so we can learn from them, but in this family, we go to God and ask Him. We go and pray together. Let me give you a stat that will save some of your marriages, change your lives and relationships. The divorce rate of couples who attend church together regularly is about 45 to 50%. Unfortunately, the church's divorce rate is not much better than the world's, which is why we need to have class and talk about the kingdom purpose to marriage, to reignite that in some marriages. But the divorce rate of couples who pray together daily is one in 1,152, less than 1% divorce rate. And that's not like you've gotta pray for two hours and you have to pray all these different things and for all these, that might be some days, one minute coming together before you go to work and just going, hey, real quick, remember we're a court of three strands. Let's not go today and try to play defense and just be two people trying to make this work. Let's let the Holy Spirit work through our relationship. Let's go to God right now and pray together. And there's times in my relationship, in my marriage, when the last thing I wanna do is pray with my wife. But in those moments where we humble ourselves, we come before the main character in our marriage, It's not me, it's not her, it's him, it's Jesus. And when we come together and humble ourselves, a lot of our pettiness just kind of goes away. Like for a lot of you couples, every time you drive to church, you get in a fight. Because there's an enemy who doesn't want you to be here. Because there's resistance to you becoming a kingdom weapon. The enemy wants you to settle for his bad strategies, to play defense for the rest of your life. But then you come here and you hear from the word and you worship and you walk out like, I'm not even mad at you anymore, what the heck happened? Oh, the Holy Spirit corrected your heart. God just spoke to you, you just sat in in reverence and awe at the main character in the story and you let God speak and realize that he's enough, he's in control, so we can take the pressure off of ourselves and we can go be a kingdom weapon together. Forgiveness, humility, repentance, those things happen when you pray together. So the world may tell us to settle for less but we're gonna sacrifice for more. The world may have bad strategies for us but in this family, we're gonna follow the biblical strategies. And I hope and pray that people look at Red Rocks Church and they go, man, they just do relationship differently. There's just different type of marriages. There's just different families there. There's something special in those relationships, the way that they date. Engaged couples who aren't so busy planning a wedding that they forget to plan their marriage. They're being joined together, glued together so that they can be unified to bear kingdom fruit and make disciples. That's my dream for the relationships in this church. And that's what God has for you.